Well, as we've done each Sunday, we started our um, time together where we stand and we read the Apostles' Creed, and we're going to do that in just a second, where we stand to affirm these words. There's much more to Christianity than just the Apostles' Creed, but Christianity can never be less than the Apostles' Creed. It is that foundational aspects of, of what Christ, Christians believe. I've had someone ask me the other day, how can you preach for 25 minutes off of like one phrase, off like one sentence? I'm like, well, preachers, we, we find a way. We're, we're really good at that. But it's also because every word in these this creed, every phrase, it's just pregnant with meaning. It's just full. It's intentional. Every single word that they included in there has a purpose and a meaning that, that won't mean to affirm when we read these words. So when we, we affirm these things, we're saying, I affirm that and I reject this, that this is the truth. This is what the truth of, the, really the explanation of reality, the explanation of the spiritual life, why things they are the way they are, why, who God is, the nature of God. Half of the Apostles' Creed is about Jesus himself. So let's stand together as we read this creed together with one voice. Such a beautiful thing to hear an assembly of a covenant community of God saying this together with one voice. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So today the phrase is suffered under Pontius Pilate crucified, dead, and buried. Every word there is purposeful. The word suffered, we know that Jesus suffered horribly under the, really the Romans in his trial. You see the word Pontius Pilate, who was the prefect or governor, if you will, of that area of Judea, of the, Ro of the Roman Empire. And they included his name simply because it's a historical figure. We found archaeological evidence after, since then, in 1969, they find a stone called the Pilate Stone, that gives us really good evidence, extra biblical evidence, of the evidence, existence, that Pontius Pilate was a real person. So it, this is a historical event. It's rooted in history. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. There's the manner of his death. He, he didn't die from being flogged and whipped. We'll hear about that later. He almost did. Um, but he was killed through the, the act of crucifixion. That was an act the Romans used to really dis, dissuade any rebellion they would put people on the sides of roads. You'd walk by and see crucified people. Uh, it was your, their way of saying, you don't mess with the Roman Empire. It was reserved for some of the worst criminals. That's how Jesus died. It affirms that Jesus died. He didn't just swoon. He didn't just faint on the cross, and then the disciples switched out the bodies or something. Like, he actually died and was buried, according to Jewish burial customs, buried in a tomb. So we know, we affirm that. Now, Jesus' suffering and death is one of the most perplexing and yet most beautiful events in history, and it's one that people have wrestled with forever. And people, really, the question is, especially if you're not a church-going person, maybe, is what does the death of a Jewish person 2,000 years ago have to do with me today? What's the point? Why does his death, more than all the other deaths in history, billions and billions of deaths, why does his death seem to have the most significance? Why do people keep talking about it? In short, why did Jesus have to die? 
And it's really, there's lots of answers to that. I'm going to look at three. One of them is, the three of them are to taste death. He died in order to taste death. He died in order to unify his people through his death. Only God would pull something like that off. And then third, he died to destroy death. He destroyed death. So first is taste death. Hebrews 2.9 touches on this where it says, He suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The human tongue has 10,000 taste buds, which is far less than cats or dogs, but we still have a quite extraordinary sense of taste. Taste works in tandem with our, our smell to really create memory, right? You can remember certain tastes and it takes you back to that moment. Isn't that amazing? It's like better than a diary. Things that you remember you tasted. Like, you can probably think of some of the best food you've ever tasted right now. I remember one time I was on a cruise ship, but they typically have pretty good food on cruises. And uh, I got a cheeseburger, and it was like the best cheeseburger I've ever had. It was like a toasted bun with butter, and it was like perfectly seasoned, and it was really big. And I remember that. It takes me back to that moment, right? I remember the worst thing I've ever tasted. Easily the worst. Um, when I was a youth minister, we decided to be crazy. You can order bugs from Indonesia that have been cooked, and they'll mail them to you. Really cheap, by the way, if you're curious about doing this. And so to be crazy and wild, we decided to eat some bugs. So I ate some chocolate-covered crickets, and we ate some mealworms. And, and the worst thing I've ever tasted was a roasted scorpion. That was the worst. Really, really horrible. It's about as bad as it sounds. Or a silkworm pupae. That was close second. But still, I can remember that. It takes you back to that moment. You remember that time. Or like if you have a great restaurant, and you go to someone, and you say, have you been to that, like, this place? And they go, yeah, I've been there, it's great. Like, I love that this dish they make. And you have this connection with this person because of the taste. The taste is what brought you together, and you have this relationship through the taste. But do you know anyone who's really tasted death? Like, oh, have you tried death? It's excellent. No, it's terrible, by the way. I wouldn't recommend death to you. And in fact, we actually have. We know many, many people who have tasted death. I have too. We have many people. But no one's ever tasted death and return to tell you what it was like. The grave is silent. We don't know, except for one person has done that, has tasted death, and come back. And that person is Jesus Christ, of course. All, I mean, no one has come back from this side of the veil except for him. Because as, as human beings, the scripture tells us, we taste death, we die because of sin. In short, that's why we die. That's why we've inherited death. The wages of sin, what we earn from sin, is death. Now, Paul would write about this extensively, the, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 6, he would write quite a bit. And the, the famous verse is the wages of sin is death. That's Romans 6, 23. Well, I'm going to read a few verses around it to give us the context, because he shows this beautiful um, contrast of sin and righteousness, death and life. He says this in Romans 6. When you were slaves of sin, he's writing to his Roman audience, talking about their former way of life before you became a Christian. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. He's really saying, when you were living your life, living it up, didn't care a thing about God or Jesus, and you're living in the flesh, and it was all good, you, were, you didn't care about righteousness. It wasn't in your radar. So that's how it was. So what advantage did you then get from the things of which you now are ashamed so what advantage did you get from living a life of sin? What did it get you? It's fun for a little while, or else you wouldn't do it. 
But what long-term advantage did you get from any of that? It's a rhetorical question. Obviously, the answer is no. The end of those things is death. Sin ends in death every single time. But now that you have been freed from sin, you're now enslaved to God. The advantage you get is sanctification or growing in holiness. So instead of living a life that leads to death, you're gonna, death is not the end of the cliff. You're going you're gonna to keep going. The advantage you get is growing in holiness now and the life to come. The end is not death, but eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, and the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Think about it this way. If someone goes to jail for committing a crime and say the, the punishment is 10 years in prison, the instant that man walks out of prison for the 10-year sentence he has fulfilled, then he's no longer under the law. The law has been satisfied, and he is not um, susceptible to anything that he has no claim on him anymore. In the same way, even though we have the guilt of death for sin that we inherit from birth, when Christ went down into death, when he tasted death, he paid the debt. He paid the sentence for us. So Christ's resurrection proves that the debt has been fully paid on our behalf. In short, Jesus tasted death so that we don't have to taste spiritual death. He says, Paul goes on to say this in Romans 6, for if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. So because of his taste of death, we don't have to. Secondly, he died in order to unify people through his death. And I'll explain what that means. He unifies people into his body, or what we call the church. See, one of the great beauties of the incarnation, of Jesus being born in the flesh, through his being born of a woman, through his adolescent years, he was a teenager, he was a young adult. He, of course, he was, an, he was an adult, he lived his life. He suffered, he died, all of that. The beauty of all of that is that he expresses solidarity with the human race. He didn't just sit on a throne and wave a wand and fix everything, but he, he got down into the muck and mire of who we are as human beings, and he expresses solidarity with us in our human condition, in our suffering, in our death, in our pain, in our bleeding. He shows solidarity in who we are. That's really effective leadership, right? You get on the front lines. You don't just say it, you do it. You back it up. You actually follow through with what you say you're going to do. I mean, even when Jesus was baptized, he showed solidarity with the human race. I've had people say, well, Jesus got baptized. That means he was a sinner, right? I'm like, no, he wasn't a sinner. He got baptized to show solidarity with us, to fulfill all righteousness, as he said. He did all sorts of things like that, not because he had to, but because he wanted to, to be with us in this life. And so his solidarity with us would culminate in his death. That's the ultimate solidarity of the human condition, because all people will eventually die. The suffering, the blood, the death. I personally know many United Methodist clergy people who find those topics repugnant. They will not preach about them. They will not sing about them. They will not talk about them. They find them, they, anything about atonement or blood, they think, oh, the Baptists do that. We don't talk about that in the Methodist church. I think that's ridiculous because it's elemental to the human condition. It's intrinsic to who we are as people. 
to suffer, to bleed, and to eventually die. There's nothing to be ashamed of. It's just reality. And that he chose to enter into all of that in order to rescue us from death. It's, of course, elemental to who we are as people to have all those things happen. And so he doesn't stand off at a distance and say, oh, too bad for you. He entered into us and showed solidarity with us and through that creates a new community of faith through his death, life, and resurrection. And truly, we can persevere because he persevered. We can overcome because he overcame. We can walk through the door because he already opened it. He already, he already went ahead of all of us. See, this is, a, this is a big topic, talking about suffering. Whole books have been written about this. Christianity doesn't offer all the solutions to suffering. No, no worldview really can, but Jesus offers the best option in that he provides a promise of God that he is present with us in our suffering. He's showing solidarity with us in the pain that you may be experiencing or the suffering you have gone through or the bleeding you have experienced. We believe in a God who says, I'm alongside you, I have suffered as you have. Way more than you would suffer, actually. All the sin of the world came upon me. I was the darkness and all that came upon me. I know what it's like, though. See, no other religion begins to offer that assurance. None. That God came down to us and died for us. I remember after 9-11, for those of us that are old enough in the room, uh, how, how old was I there? I was 22. And all the churches the Sunday after 9-11 were completely packed. You might remember that? I'm sure this sanctuary was packed too. Full of people. Like the church I was at, like people were looking in the doors. I mean, it was like windows were open. Packed out. Tim Keller is a preacher in Manhattan. He has a big church in New York. And he said after 9-11, a thousand new people came in the doors Sunday after 9-11 because they were right there in the epicenter. And all of them had the same question of Keller where they said, what does your God have to offer me at a time like this. Basically, what can he do for me? Because I'm scared. I saw the plane go into the building. And his answer was, Christianity is the only faith that can honestly say to you that God lost a child through injustice, through violent injustice. It's the only religion that tells you God suffered as you have suffered. And not, he doesn't leave you in your sufferings, but that he wants to be with you so that your sufferings might be, become more like his. George MacDonald wrote this, one of C.S. Lewis's uh, mentors, really. MacDonald wrote this, The Son of God suffered under death, not that men might not suffer, but that their sufferings might be like his. And because God has solidarity with us, even to the point of death, we can die, but be raised as he has been raised. In this regard, his death helps unite people together in ways that we never could have organized ourselves. To weave people into this tapestry, this beautiful picture of the, the body of Christ, of God's people, forming us into his body. I'm going to take a quick poll, a hand-raising poll. You've got to be honest. We're in church, so you can't, you, can't, uh, you know. So don't, don't like, take notes on people or anything like that. But I'm going to borrow this from my, a guy named Matt Chandler. I love this, what he did. And there's a point to it, I promise. We're going to do a little poll. Okay, how many of you um, have a master's degree? We're not bragging about master's degrees. But how, many, how many of you have a master's degree? Just raise up. Be proud. You worked hard for that. I got one. 
Okay, I'm not bragging, but I got one. Who here, uh, who here has a PhD? Anybody have a doctorate? Be on, just be modest, it's okay. There's a few in the room. All right, is Jeff in here? He's got one. Jeff's not here, okay. Okay, how many of you, you, you got your high school diploma, you got your GED, you should be proud of that. Be proud of that. Yeah, well, everybody, well, my hand's going up on that one. Be proud of that. Okay, how many of you came from means when you grew up? Mom and or dad provided quite well. Money was never a concern. Anybody? I'm not raising my hand. I'm, I'm like in the middle. How many of you are like, no, no, that was not me. I'm somewhere in the middle. How many of you, I'm going to be honest here too, um, this is my story before uh, I came to faith, high school and college years. How many of you have struggled with drugs or alcohol? You be honest. I'm raising my hand. That was a struggle for me in my early, late teens. Okay? Thanks for your honesty. How many of you were not born in the South? Okay, uh, we, we have pity on you. It's okay. We, we, we still love you. Still love you. Um, how many of you were not, were not born in the United States? You're born in a different country altogether. One, two, three. Look at that. I mean, look at this room. Look at any, really any church that did that. We never, we never would be friends, maybe. But the blood of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, when you walk up front and we take communion, you're united with all these people you never would have been connected with. But through his life, God weaves us together into his body. How beautiful is that? That I love this quote from um, Eugene Peterson. It's one of my favorite quotes about this idea. Jesus doesn't seem to be very discriminating in the children he lets into his kitchen to help with the cooking. Thanks be to God that he doesn't. That he lets all of us in that profess faith in Christ. I mean, when you throw a net into the ocean, you're going to gather all sorts of things. And that's what's happening is that through the death of Christ, he unites us together as a covenant community. We're not just separate silos, but we're called to be together in community, living life as one body. I mean, the Church of Jesus is the most diverse, inclusive organization in the world. We're the most spread out across the world, but we also have the biggest percentages of all types of people groups. Why is that? It's because the death and life and resurrection of Jesus meets the deepest needs of the human condition. That that's why Christianity is the most popular religion in the world is because people realize it answers the needs of the human heart. And one of the greatest needs we have is community. That you are not yourself by yourself. That we're called to be connected as one. And if we don't do it now, and we will certainly get a taste of that in the life to come. So it's just a, 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 a shadow, the community we experience in the church, it's just a through a glass darkly, if you will, of what the life will be like in life to come in, in heaven. So we have tasted death, unifies us through his death, and then destroys death, destroys death. Um, I'm thinking, I was trying to think of things I've actually destroyed. We don't, in this world, we can't really eradicate something. When we say destroy, I really mean like crashed something. I crashed a car. It wasn't my fault. It's the other guy's fault. I was living in Huntersville at the time, living in an apartment, and I left on a Saturday morning about 8 a.m. to go do something, and I get in my car, stop at a four-way stop. I'm literally like 50 feet from my apartment. Stop, start to go, and then a guy hits me in the rear and spins me around, completely devastates my cute little Nissan Sentra, little leased car. Total loss. 
Then the story gets really interesting where we get out. I said, do you have an insurance card? He said, oh, it's in my apartment. I'll be right back. And I was like, whoa, no, don't go. He ran off. I'm like, oh, great. Maybe it wasn't his car. I don't know. Then the story, and then I call the police. The police start to come. The guy comes back, and he's wearing a different shirt. And he goes, whoa, what happened? I said, you hit me with your car. And he said, no, I didn't. That was a different guy. He was wearing a different shirt. <laughs> True story. And then I said, how do you know he was wearing a different shirt? And he was like, that wasn't me, man. I'm like, it was you. And then the police officer shows up, starts to take a report, and he realizes, he's, the cop said, I'm going to write you a ticket for lying to me. I said, you can write tickets for lying to people? That's so cool. Thank God for police officers. You know, I didn't destroy the car. The car just got beat up pretty bad. Maybe you can think of something you have crashed or damaged. On this earth, we don't destroy ultimately really anything. It, maybe it fades away, but it doesn't get destroyed. I mean, but death, how do you destroy something like death? It's not just like crashing a car. How do you get rid of death? God has the ability to not just crash things, but to completely remove them from existence, to completely forget about them. Like the psalmist writes that God forgets about your sin as far as the east is from the west. I mean, how far is that? Like he, he doesn't remember your sin after you've, you've been atoned by the blood of Christ in your life. Like God's able to like remove the power of death. How do you do that? How many of you have ever lost your keys? I probably lost them right now. Here's my keys. We all lost our keys. They sell key fobs. If you lose your keys, it'll beep. I probably need to buy one of those. You can find your keys. We've lost keys. I mean, if you own keys, you have the ownership of the thing. You feel like, okay, this is mine now. My car, my house, like I'm owner of this thing. I have the keys to get in and out. It is mine. Jesus says, I have taken the keys of death and Hades away from the devil. Wish I could have seen that happen. I've taken the keys, and they are mine. They are not yours anymore. You don't have any power anymore. They are mine. I'm in charge. This is mine. And by doing so, he has destroyed death by overcoming it and owning it. Revelation 1.18 says, I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. And see, I'm alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. We are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. He has overcome. Jesus says, because I live, you also will live. But it's one thing to read those words on a page, and it's another thing to live your life and maybe to stare death in the face. Maybe some of you have, or you've seen someone die. And it's scary. It's very scary. The older we get, we think more about death, for sure. And... I mean, this is a sort of a cliche at this point, but people are asked, what's your biggest fear? And death is not number one. Number one is public speaking. And number two is death. So it's like you'd rather be uh, in the casket than given the eulogy. It's like, right? So it's like people are freaked out. But I mean, death is, it's scary. It's scary. But trust me, public speaking is not as bad as you think. But you struggle with death. And the enemy of our souls, the devil, he certainly, he's like a, de- a lion prowling around. He wants to devour. He's looking for things to devour and destroy and accuse and divide and ruin and take things that are meant to be holy and make them unholy. That's what he likes to do. He's very, very sly in this way. 
He also likes to take our biggest fears and throw them against us and accuse us of, of those things. And one of those, obviously, is death or public speaking. Um, but death is the main one that he wants to hold over people's heads. And, um, I mean, when I was on Reddit, an app maybe some of you have, it's a lot of people younger than me on it, and they have threads about death. What do you think is going to happen after death? And a lot of them say, I just think you just kind of float off. You just sort of exist in blackness, or it's like going to sleep, or something like that. And I'm just, I just feel such sadness for that. I'm like, that's your hope? Is that you just, you just float in blackness for all eternity? Isn't life more beautiful than that? I mean, if things here on earth are as beautiful as they are, why can't the life to come be even more? It's, it's tragic. It's tragic that people believe that, that death is just the end. And I'm like, God is strong enough to not just destroy death, I mean, not just crash death, but destroy it and take the keys away from it and own it. And that's what he's done. And so we have this judgment, this accusation of death that hangs over our heads. But Jesus said in John 12, 31, he says, now is the time for judgment on this world. It's before he goes to the cross, before he gets to the trial. The time for judgment of this world, now the prince of this world, Satan, will be driven out. And that's, of course, is what happened. The empty tomb, through the empty tomb, Christ destroyed the devil's most powerful weapon, death. So his accusations against you or anyone else about death have no more power because he owns the keys of it. It's his. But you don't have to be paralyzed by the fear of death. Hebrews 2.14 reminds us, since therefore the children share flesh and blood, that's me and you, we share flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise shared flesh and blood, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, not a figment of our imagination, not a metaphor, he's an actual spiritual being that has limited power, but a lot of power, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. I mean, if someone has, is, is slave to the fear of death, God doesn't want that for anybody. And Jesus' actions have, have proved that. And maybe the answer to that is just to look at the death of Jesus and see that it is a beautiful thing. We don't have to squirm and run away from it. When the movie The Passion of the Christ came out in 2004, uh, it was a phenomenon. It made over $300 million, it was packed theaters. It was an incredible experience to sit in a movie theater and watch that movie. It, something happened at the end of the movie I've never experienced since then, which was we just sat there, 300 people, and no one got up for like 15 minutes. People just sat there, this holy sort of silence, it was amazing. But in that movie, it's rated R, because of the violence of the whipping and the scourging, and, and they said we want to make it as historically real as possible. I don't think it's gratuitous. I think it was really like that. It was widely believed the Romans, if the Romans whipped anybody 40 times or more, front and back, that a man could not survive it. That was proven. They were experts at prolonging death. They were really good at it. And so Pilate has Jesus next to him in front of this crowd, and the crowd wants to kill him. Pilate goes, no. I'm just going to have him beaten, and then we'll bring him back, and that should satisfy you. So they send him off. They whip him 39 times with a, a 
a, basically a flagrum, which is like a whip with bone and all sorts of things in it, uh, little lead balls and glass. It's a, it's a horrible thing. Bring him back, and of course it wasn't enough. The crucifixion was all they were really interested in. But I remember watching those scenes, and it's difficult to watch, I'm not going to lie. When you're sitting in that theater, you're watching that movie, and you're seeing the reality of that moment, it's brutal. Even the actor, Jim Caviezel, said, I tried to take some of the blows naturally in my back with the fake whip. He said, one of them knocked the breath out of me. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I had to wear a vest that took the hit because I couldn't act and remain conscious. In that moment, when you're watching the movie, people are squirming. I was squirming. I saw a woman in front of me. She had to do like this. You know, you, you avert your eyes, and, and I understand that. But I also realized in that moment, I think we should look full in the face of that moment because what we're seeing is our sin at work. It's not fun. It's not easy. It's hard. But through that is freedom. Through that is spiritual freedom. I think there's something deeper happening when we're squirming. What we're really saying is, I really don't want to look at what my sin sin has done. I'd rather just focus on the good news. That's why maybe churches are full on Easter, but Good Friday, Holy Saturday, eh, not so much. We just like the good news, but the bad news stuff, eh, we don't want to hear about some of that. My responsibility in some of that? I don't think so. But can you have good news without the bad news? You can't get to the empty tomb without going first through the cross. Maybe it's time God desires for us to see ourselves, not as we want to be, see ourselves, but as God sees us, as a beloved child of his that he died for, that he bled for, that he took your sin on the cross for. See, with his death, there are no passive onlookers. There really aren't. If you look full in the face of Jesus' death, a decision must be made. What will I do with this? What does this mean to me personally? How will this transform my life? And then after that, how can I then be an offering poured out to the world as well as he has done for us? Jesus went all the way for us. He tasted death. He unifies us in his death. And he destroyed death. Let's pray together. God in heaven, indeed, you have paid all of our debt. And I, I know I'm guilty of this as well. There's people in the room today who have debt, who have sin, who have guilt, who have wounds, and we're, we're clinging to those things. We haven't received your forgiveness in our lives. We haven't given them to you. Maybe we've laid them on the altar, and then we come back and we pick them up. God, I want anyone here within the sound of my voice to, ne- to hear that it's paid for. What you have done on our behalf, it's paid for. We don't need to hold on to it any longer. We might have to suffer the repercussions of it for a little while, but you have paid for it. You have forgiven us. And today is the day to receive that forgiveness, to be released of that fear of death, perhaps, and to embrace your eternal life for ourselves. It's in Jesus' holy name we do pray. Amen.